Excellent. Well, Philip Dwyer, David Markham, David Markham, Philip Dwyer. Philip, David, how are you? I'm delighted to, to, to meet you, such as it is. I, I wish we were allowed to have the video on so I could see you, but I am looking at your uh, photograph here anyway on, the, uh, on, on, on your book, so I have at least some vague idea who I'm talking to. Well, thank, thank you for having me on your program. I'm looking forward well, to it. It's, it's an honor to have someone of your uh, quality on here. We're delighted that you are willing to do so. And uh, Philip, yeah, apologies for all of the, the struggles in pulling it together and apologies to the audience too for those listening in. Um, I know it's been a long time between drinks, friends, but um, <laughs> it's, it's been hard to get uh, schedules lined up, etc., etc. But here we are. Um, well, and, and Cameron, let me, let me interject here so that you know, blame is, is place where blame belongs. Uh, most of the delay has been my fault. Uh, I have been extraordinarily busy. Uh, more than once we've tried to get something going and then my schedule has caused us to cancel and, and to our many thousands of faithful listeners out there, I, I do deeply apologize for the delay, but, uh, I'm, I'm real pleased that, that we're able to, uh, to have this one, uh, fall into place and to have someone, uh, as, as important as Phil Dwyer, uh, as our guest. So let me introduce uh, Philip to the audience who haven't read his uh, work. Um, the, the, the purpose for our show is to have him on is to discuss, obviously, Napoleon. Um, and he wrote a, a very popular book. I know it won at least uh, one fairly major award in Australia, Napoleon, The Path to Power. Came out in 2007, 2008, something like that, Philip? Uh, the UK version in 2007 and the US version the following year. Congratulations on the success of the book and the award that it won as well. Thank you very much. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, Philip. Introduce yourself. Uh, sure. I, I am an Australian uh, born in uh, Perth, Australia, which is on the West Coast. Uh, spent the first 20-odd years of my life there and then decided that I had to escaped the confines uh, of uh, a fairly small town and uh, went off to Paris where after living there for a few years I decided to go back to university and went to uh, the Sorbonne, um, Paris uh, 4 as uh, this uh, particular university is known as and that's where I met uh, Jean Toulard who was uh, uh, the professor um, and the chair of of, uh, of uh, modern French history at the time at the Sorbonne and who introduced me to the Napoleonic period as well as the revolutionary period and I went on to, to do my uh, the equivalent of a master's uh, uh, work with him and later uh, went off to uh, Berlin to start uh, my PhD that was about 1989 um, and stayed there for a few years before coming back to Australia to complete it but by that time I'd sort of gotten off onto other subjects as you have to do when you're, you're doing a PhD. It was related to the period but not to the person of Napoleon. Um, and I came back uh, to Napoleon, which I think was really what fascinated me about the period, so about 10 years or so later after I'd written a number of pieces on various aspects of the revolutionary Napoleonic eras. Till then, it took me some years to uh, work through the material to publish this first uh, volume. You, as you, I'm sure you and your listeners are aware, 
<coughs> excuse me, um, there are masses of uh, material related to the man and the period, and it's often uh, difficult wading through it and deciding what is uh, worthwhile and what is, is not worthwhile. Um, and I'm still in that process now, uh, writing the second volume, and it may indeed turn into a third volume. I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. Adding, so that's where I am. Adding to the ever-growing canon of Napoleonic literature, doing your bit. Indeed, yes. I know that, I know that people think uh, that Napoleon has been uh, done to death and that there are countless biographies of him, but in the English language, it's, it, there are not as many as, uh, as people assume there are. In fact, the last, I mean, apart from in the last few years, there have been quite a few that have come out. There's Stephen England, of course, and there was Alan Schon before that, and uh, Frank McLean. Um, <coughs> but before that, it was the 1950s and 60s before, before we had uh, English accounts of Napoleon, the life of Napoleon anyway. And so can you um, start off, I guess, so everyone knows where you stand. David and I are infamous, infamously uh, slightly pro-Napoleon. Uh, we have been accused no. from time to time of maybe uh, being a little bit too on the pro side. Uh, where would you position yourself at a meta <laughs> level, Philip? Are you on the uh, you know, good, bad or indifferent side? Uh, I, look, I'm... I know that people think that I'm hostile towards Napoleon. I, that's the impression that I get uh, from listening to some people. But uh, I don't approach the subject or the man uh, intent on destroying his reputation. I'm, I, as an historian, our, my main task is to adopt a critical view of the man and the period in which he lived. And sometimes when you do that, the idealistic uh, gloss that has been put on Napoleon over the years and much of it coming out of Napoleon's own propaganda efforts at the time um, tends to wear off. So I, what I want to do above all is uh, get behind the gloss a little bit and uh, it's, it's not that I want to dig up the dirt but I want to paint a, a, a warts and all portrait of the man and in doing that with anybody with any historical character you are bound to come across aspects of a person's life and personality that might not uh, please everyone especially if they run counter to the image that they may have had of, of him up till that time so well, that, you know, and and I and I, if you'll forgive me, I, I agree with you, and I think that uh, a, a lot of the work that you've done is very important. I do, I do note that that the two examples of recent biography that you gave, especially one of them, Alan Schaum, is notoriously anti-Napoleon, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 your book, on the other hand, really I think is much more. Even-handed. I've not read the entire book. I hasten to add, but I read some parts of it, and I've certainly looked through a, a fairly impressive uh, uh, bibliography. But, but uh, are you suggesting that those two books that you mentioned, uh, McGlynn and and Shom, both of which are, are McGlynn is somewhat negative toward Napoleon, and Shom is notoriously, uh, rabidly anti-Napoleon. Uh, but I would I would like to think that those aren't the sort of the guiding lights from the, that you've used. Oh no, they're not. And I have to say that that uh, 
Uh, both of those books are, I think, are flawed in some respects, especially the McGlynn uh, book. Um, but I have to, I'd, I'd underline that neither of them are what um, I would normally dub um, a professional historian. That is, someone who belongs to the academy, someone who teaches and researches full-time at a university. And, and that's important because it allows that person to go off and research their topic uh, for many years if they feel like it because they have a paid job at a university which allows them to do so. McLean, for one, is, uh, is um, a, a, he's a, a writer that has to turn out a book every couple of years in order right. to make a living. Now, when you do that, you cannot hope to come up with anything new. You can't uh, go into the archives and try and discover something uh, that uh, may have been neglected by other historians. You can't rethink your subject. So both of those historians have a tendency to, <coughs> excuse me, uh, have a tendency to rehash uh, much of what has been written about Napoleon uh, to date, and they do so in a, in a quite, I agree, unflattering light. Um, possibly unnecessarily unflattering. Uh, it's almost as though they, they want to stick the knife into Napoleon, but without uh, giving us uh, a, a good reason as to why they necessarily want to. Um, exactly. I, th I think a better effort is Stephen England, which I think is more, more balanced. But yes. Stephen, too, I have to say, um, produced that work in uh, a relatively short um, uh, period of time, which is in, in and of itself quite an amazing feat. Um, <clears throat> but there, there too, there are certain aspects of his take on Napoleon, which can do no more than summarise or repeat uh, what has already been uh, said before. Well, and, 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 and not only that, it should be pointed out, and, and I've had correspondence with Stephen, and Stephen and I were on a, on a, a History Channel show together, and he'd be the first to tell you that he's not even a specialist in Napoleon. Much of his work has been in, in, in different areas. So, you know, sure. the, it, was, it was an interesting book, and as you say, uh, uh, put together very, very quickly, and, and, and in some ways it's an important contribution, but it's but it's got its uh, drawbacks as well. Yeah, uh, Stephen's much more interested in the Third Republic than he is in the First Empire. Um, exactly. But it's the, the, those are the demands of uh, publishing. You often have to publish works if you're a professional writer like that. Um, that sure. That uh, you, in areas or subjects that you may not be entirely familiar with. But the, uh, the advantage of someone working at university who has the luxury of uh, spending years uh, working on a book um, is, is that we can rethink uh, subjects. Now, the other thing is that there are not many uh, people working in universities who want to write uh, a biography of Napoleon. And what, if in, what often ends up hap happening is if they write um, a book on the era, it's it's usually from some kind of social, political, or military angle, and even sometimes bio, so-called biographies of Napoleon are not really biographies, they're more um, social or political histories of the period rather than... Sure. So... So, but I, but I, do, I, do, I do have to sort of jump in and, and, and say, as a, as, a, as a matter of uh, a theoretical construct at least, I do disagree that Somehow, the only good research, the only uh, good writing on Napoleon, can come from those people who have 
university uh, positions and who who therefore can can work for years and years and go into the archives and so on. I I suspect you will find that there are some very good historians who who don't have university appointments. Uh, who who still can do some very very uh, important work in the field? Um, you you may very well be right, um, <laughs> but um, I'm I'm just trying to think of one um, apart from yourself uh, working in the field today in the Napoleonic or the Revolutionary era who isn't attached to a university. Would you be able to uh, name a few names, please, David? Actually, well, I, I, actually for, for the, I, I would like to interrupt this conversation if I can and, sure. and, and steer it away from a debate about the merits of uh, various okay. authors and historians. We can, we, can, we can pick that up later on if you like, gentlemen. I want to talk about Napoleon for a second, if we can. Um, uh, Philip, what, what, what led to your interest in Napoleon? I mean, as an Aussie, I mean, I, I grew up in the 70s learning a particular Commonwealth version of Napoleon and... When I read my first biography on him, which was Vincent Cronin's in my uh, late yep. teens, I remember being shocked at yep. the difference between what I had been taught briefly in history at school and what I read in Cronin. What, what is it about Napoleon that's uh, fascinated you? Um, I, I guess I was introduced to him really for the first time through Jean Toulard at the Sorbonne. And I found Toulard himself to be a fascinating lecturer and incredibly entertaining, but also informative lecturer. And I got into the period uh, that way. Now, Napoleon the Man uh, sort of took my fancy because, like you, some of the biographies that I'd read of him up until uh, really quite recently, I just, I weren't entirely convincing and sort of, I was, was left wanting more at the, coming to the end of their books. I I'd, I'd got the impression that nobody had really grappled with the man and the personality as such, or there, at least there wasn't any contemporary works around that had gotten to the heart of the man. So this is, this is what decided me to start uh, my own work on him. And Shulman and McLean, for example, which came out as I was writing the first volume, I don't think um, did a particularly good job at getting to the man either. So I'm interested in uncovering, really, if at all possible, I know it's very difficult when we talk about this in terms of writing biography, just who Napoleon was and what motivated him and what drove him to do what he did. So why don't we drill into that a little bit? I'd love to get your perspective on the answers to some of those questions. I guess that's uh, that's why we wanted to get you on the show. Um, I, I'm very keen to get some people on that can provide different perspectives to the the ones that David and I might usually have. Um, let's let's start with a question that I like to ask. I mean, why is Napoleon even relevant or uh, interesting 200 years later? By the way, I should point out that we're recording this. I think on the anniversary. Of uh, Brumaire, is it still? Today? Oh, it is too. Goodness me, I've forgotten all about. <laughs> so, By golly, you're right. You know, here, 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 two. I would, I would like to say, two relatively important uh, Napoleonic historians, and neither one of us uh, realized that. Well, David, I, I have to give credit to Nicholas Stark, our friend. He mentioned it on Twitter this morning and raised a glass. And so, um, well, that's that's what I get for not checking Twitter more frequently, I guess. So uh, it's the 210th anniversary, I think he said, of uh, 
18 Brumaire. So, uh, anyway, so what... Vive, vive l'Empereur. Vive l'Empereur. Uh, why is, it, why is uh, Napoleon relevant in uh, the, the early years of the 21st century, Philip? I don't know if he is as relevant as he used to be, in particular in French, in terms of French history. But I think he still uh, holds a fascination in the modern world because he represents, um, in some respects, the modern man and what's, uh, what the modern man is potentially uh, capable of. That is, you can rise... Uh, from nothing to be to the pinnacle of uh, power. It's it's a modern story in some respects, and um, I, I guess in that respect sets an example for all of us who have uh, a modicum of talent and are willing to work. Um, and, and it basically says to us, and it resonates with uh, the modern individual, I think, that you know, anybody is capable of rising to the heights of, of glory or power or the pinnacle of your profession or, or whatever. I think, I think that's why, essentially, Napoleon fascinates so many modern readers today. Anyway, and that's I my think, take I, on it. I, and I think you're right. I, I completely agree. And, and interestingly enough, Napoleon would completely agree. I mean, his famous uh, comment in every soldier's knapsack, there's a marshal's baton. Uh, he, he's the prime example of someone who has reached into his knapsack and, and pulled out a, a marshal's baton. And I, I think that that is the inspiration that Napoleon gives to, to the modern world, perhaps more than any other that that idea, as you say, uh, Phil, or Phil or Philip, I'm not sure which you prefer, uh, but the, that that idea that you can rise as far as your you know fundamental abilities will allow you to rise. That's that's the essence of Western democracies, in, in, in a very real sense. I mean, you know, when you think about what does it mean to live in a, a democracy like Australia or the United States or the UK or France, uh, well, it, it it means that people are able to achieve success based on their abilities and Napoleon certainly is a classic example of someone who was able to achieve against great odds because it was hardly a democracy that that he lived in uh based on his his ability mm. and the the flip side of that is the fall of course the fact that uh, he lost everything uh, also, I think is an incredibly fascinating aspect to this man's uh, this this man's career. Oh, um, abs- it, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, he he rose and he fall and he rose again and he fell again. I mean, it's you know Napoleon once said, "What a what a novel my life has been," and 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 I, I think Phil and I would both agree that that's absolutely true. It would be a fiction writer would be hard-pressed to come up with a story as compelling and as fascinating as the story of Napoleon's life. Whether you love him or hate him or, or have just sort of, you know, indifference to him as, 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 as in terms of was he a good or a bad force in history, but the fascination of his life is just impossible to ignore. So, Philip, I, I sense that uh, uh, an interesting area for us to mine is for you to uh, convey to us some of the uh, uh, moments in Napoleon's career or some of the stories or myths about him that during the writing of your book you decided 
uh, had the, the truth needed to be told, that the, you have a different version of events than uh, the way it's normally portrayed in some of the other books. Can you share with us uh, one of those? Um, well, Arcolo is, is, is a prime example, which uh, more, I more or less start out with uh, that particular uh, tale. And, and, and what I was discovering as I was researching and, and writing about uh, this aspect of his life is that um, Napoleon is, is above all incredibly in tune with uh, the media of the day. There's something incredibly instinctive about how he can exploit uh, the newspapers and the iconography of the day uh, for his own political purposes. So we f we find much like much of the spin we would get uh, from a politician in the modern world that Napoleon what Napoleon is telling the public and what is what is happening behind the scenes are not necessarily the same thing. And it was I thought it was worth underlining that particular aspect of his political rise to power to start with. I mean, Arcola, in some respects, I mean, we can debate whether militarily it was uh, yeah, necessary or even uh, a, a particularly, um, you know, you know, whether the battle itself uh, was well fought, but um, it was the way the image of the battle was projected onto the French public, which I, I found fascinating. And Brumaire is, is another example, of course. I mean, it was complete schmozzle, as far as I can tell, on the 19th of uh, Brumaire <laughs> at uh, St. Cloud. And yet uh, the version of that day that's presented to the French public is a sanitised version, of course. I mean, any politician would have done the same thing. But it was interesting juxtaposing those two different uh, sides of the same coin, if you like. I agree with Philip that, that Napoleon was a master of manipulating the media to, to his uh, advantage, whether it was the, the newspapers or, or engravings that were, that were produced and, and distributed around the countryside, uh, the bulletins. Uh, the the you know medals that were produced by the uh, Monet de Paris, uh, all of these things Napoleon understood. He was the ultimate what we call in the United States uh, a spinmeister. He could spin the news to his advantage. Now I I do want to say, however, that doesn't mean that he was making stuff up and that he was taking something that was bad and making it into something that was good. He was simply taking events and making sure that he was the central focus of those events. I, I, I disagree with Philip, but to some extent, I, I, I think Arcola was, was in fact a, a, an important event. But whether or not it was, we both agree Napoleon was able to make it an important event and one of the sort of icons of, of his rise to power uh, or, or his, 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 as you would say, Philip, the, his path to power uh, in your book. And uh, I think that uh, politicians today can only wish they had that ability. Very few politicians uh, would be able to use the various elements of the media as successfully as Napoleon did. And, and again, that's not a bad thing necessarily, but it certainly is something that we need to understand about Napoleon's uh, path to power. 
Philip, let me let me ask you the, a question about the famous uh, flag incident at Arcola, where Napoleon obviously grabs the flag to try and inspire the men to cross the bridge, which is probably the the single image that was uh, defined most strongly in the propaganda and the, the painting mm-hmm. by Vernet, etc. Um, sure. Do you have any reason, Philip, to believe that that event didn't happen? Is there any evidence that you uncovered that says it's actually a, a falsehood? Well, it didn't happen the way that Napoleon said it happened. It certainly didn't happen the way it was portrayed in, in Gros' uh, portrait, for example. According to some witnesses, at least, Napoleon and his troops didn't get within 50 metres of the bridge. And that seems a perfectly reasonable thing to to conclude in hindsight, knowing, as we do know, that there were 12 or 13 uh, cannon uh, on the other side of the bridge uh, you know, spewing forth uh, shots at anybody who approached it. And if you've been to Arkola and had a look uh, more or less at where the bridge would have been and how uh, wide it was, Arkola's, uh, the river itself is it's, it's just a, a little uh, stream at this particular it's, point. Yeah, it's, it's really just a creek. Yes, and I think from memory it's possibly about 20 metres or so wide. Uh, not the, I, don't, I don't know how many yards uh, that is, you'll have to forgive me, but it's not, it's not very long at all. And so having 13 cannon or so at the other end um, shooting at you would have made it incredibly difficult for anybody to get anywhere near the bridge. And according to some um, memoirs that I came across in the writing of this in any event, they didn't, I guess, anywhere near it. And as, and as far as I can tell, most of the troops under Napoleon's command that day wisely decided that it was they were better off um, taking cover rather than attacking the bridge uh, head on. So Napoleon here, this is a good example of Napoleon, Napoleon using um, what in effect was a, set, a setback, if not a defeat, and turning it into a major victory. Uh, the fact that he is able to do this means that he's someone of um, incredible imagination, but also someone who is ruthless enough to exploit um, the possibilities, so to speak. Um, he doesn't, uh, you know, quaver in front of. I'd, I'd, and in this, I'd have to disagree a little bit with uh, David. I do. I'd, do think he does twist the truth around to uh, meet his own ends and in doing so he is in effect giving us uh, or giving the public the French public falsehoods and he does this because um, his ultimate objective is to glorify his own person at this particular stage of his life it was also to glorify the French army but it was also to get ahead politically well, I, I I do want to take at least some issue with you. First of all, uh, I'm not so sure that the 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 fact that those cannon were firing away would prevent the French soldiers from from taking the bridge or getting onto the bridge anyway. Uh, you look at Lodi. You look at other situations. Uh, soldiers can 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 move. You know, much further against uh, massive firepower than you than you might think. Uh, you know, the 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 soldiers uh, at Lodi, for example, had tremendous amount of fire against them, and yet they were able to to get across the bridge. And then, of course, ultimately the 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 cavalry uh, flanking motion, uh, you know, sealed that little victory. But think about. Uh, 
the D-Day beaches. Uh, when I when I watched Saving Private Ryan uh, uh, with that wonderful uh, scene uh, showing the uh, attack at D-Day with the overwhelming uh, firepower uh, that that the uh, that the that the Germans had against uh, those who were attempting to land, and yet they were able to land. And, and they were able to uh, secure the beach. And, and one of the people who was watching with me was, in fact, a veteran of the D-Day landings. And I asked him, you know, looking at all of this, how the hell could you possibly have got there and, and, and established the beach? And he said, we simply put more people, we, we, we move people in faster than they could kill us. Uh, and and to a certain extent, that's what you see in in attacks against superior forces or against well entrenched forces, whether it's Lodi, Arcola, uh, D Day, or whatever. You simply throw more people uh, at a point than they can kill. Uh, so uh, the idea that Napoleon or the French never got to the bridge because there were thirteen cannon, I, I don't I don't buy that. I, I don't know the. The eyewitness accounts that you that you're using, and, and I don't dispute that you have some very good sources. Again, I consider you an, a really outstanding historian. I just think in this case that it seems fairly reasonable to assume that Napoleon was, in fact, or the French were, in fact, uh, able to at least get to the bridge in spite of the the, the rather fearsome uh, uh, forces uh, arrayed against them. And, and I'll just add my slight bit that even the the uh, mythology around it says that everyone standing to the left and right of Napoleon got mowed down when they got to the bridge. So it was, uh, I guess, and that's part of the story that I've always found, you know, slightly mythological. This 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 idea that Napoleon's star was shining and he the bullets, you know, uh, took a neo esque uh, swoop <laughs> around his body. You know, it's like. Napoleon Napoleon said to Reyes, are you saying I can dodge bullets? And Reyes said, what I'm saying, Napoleon, is when you're ready, you won't have to. That kind of uh, neo-esque thing I always found a little bit hard to swallow. But, uh, well, sure. Everyone else got killed, though, right? Well, you also have to keep in mind that that the bridge wasn't taken until the third day when Mackinac right. was sent around um, further to the north north to cross the river and come behind the Austrian troops to just attack. like just just like Lodi just like Lodi is a slightly different uh, situation in that it's a, it's a much longer bridge and a much yes. shallower river so that soldiers could actually jump into the water and try and cross that way but you couldn't do that at Arkel the Arkel is far too steep it's almost in a little a little gorge, and anybody That's who true. fell would have badly hurt themselves off the yeah. bridge. That is, um, but and I've been the there, and, and I've been there, and I agree with you. It is, it, it is quite different. Yes, and but we also have to keep in mind that even uh, Napoleon uh, wrote off shortly after the battle to the Directory to complain about how badly his men performed that uh, that day and how well the Austrians uh, fought. Um, so I, you know, I, we may have to agree to disagree here, but I, I have not uh, come across anything that definitively states that the bridge was crossed uh, front on, and that uh, Napoleon was on it with a flag. Uh, as far as I'm aware, all of that is made up after the after the event. 
It uh, reminds me of a quote of Napoleon's where I think he said, or he is quoted to have said, a leader is a dealer in hope. And I've often thought, I mean, one of the very clever things about Napoleon's use of propaganda and art and, uh, you know, the, the printed materials that he put out was he was building a sense of uh, a hope, a sense of prestige around both himself as the leader of the army and the army itself and what they were capable of, which... You know, I, I guess is uh, not dissimilar to things we see corporate leaders and government leaders doing in the 20th and 21st centuries, trying to inspire people to rise above the, the truth, which, if you knew it, may uh, be more depressing than is if you don't know it. It's like George Bush standing on the ship declaring victory. Not that we should ever talk about George Bush on this show, because when we do... The American audience, half of them anyway, go, oh, oh you got to talk, keep your politics to yourself, <laughs> yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, but but, but yeah. In, in, term, in terms of Arcola, I mean, I think we, we need to keep things in perspective because Philip is exactly right. It was a couple of days later that, we, that the French actually were able to take the bridge. And no, Napoleon leading the troops on this first day, you know, and grabbing the flag and all that stuff. And at one point actually, you know, being pushed into the river, uh, you know, he, he actually was in, 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 in serious trouble at one point, according to the sources that I've looked at. But I think rather than see this as an attempt by Napoleon to perpetrate, a, you know, a, a lie or something, I think to a certain extent that this, this, image of Napoleon leading his troops across the bridge, I think it was used then and, and still serves now more symbolically, uh, more of an, an effort to show the valor, not just of Napoleon, but of the French in general, who after all were in fact ultimately quite successful against the Austrians in this campaign. And so when you're successful, you look for certain icons, you look for certain images you can use to, to show the, 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 the valor that, 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 that led to, to, to your victory. And the idea of this young general grabbing the flag and leading it across the bridge, which may not be completely accurate, at least not all by itself, because after all, we do know historically that he fell into the river and had to be fished out and so on. Uh, never, nevertheless, this is pretty much a time-honored tradition that you look for some kind of icons to inspire people uh, with with the the, 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 the the grandeur or the greatness of of the performance of your soldiers and and i, I don 't find this to be dishonest uh, it, it, it might be uh, a, a, little, a little bit uh, over the top but but it's it 's not ultimately uh, something that that didn 't reflect the reality of the ultimate French victory well. Well, I'd have to agree uh, with David there that these aren't meant to be accurate portrayals of historical events. They are uh, meant to be symbols that glorify both the individuals portrayed but also the the feats of the army at the time. And a lot of it is about uh, also, in some respects, showing the potential uh, valour of each uh, revolutionary general in these uh, portraits. Um, so it's clear that there's, you know, these are representations of uh, of, of what uh, happens, and sometimes you can get competing 
stories, competing narratives of what uh, happened uh, within paintings uh, made during the day. Um, but I guess what uh, I find a little concerning is, is that many modern readers tend to look at these paintings as though they were accurate historical representations and take them at face value. Indeed, they take a lot of what's said about this period by um, the actual actors and, and witnesses themselves at face value without really questioning what's going on behind the scenes. And the Gros painting of Arcola is a classic example of that. You're right, Abbott. It is. It is. It, it's symbolic. It's. It's not an actual portrayal of of what happened. But well, I that's think a that's lot of why. The, that's why sorry. they need to read your book and my books. Yes. yes. <laughs> because right. we 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 will tell we will tell them, and and I think I I'm sure you think of me as a very pro Napoleon. But even if you look at 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 Napoleon for Dummies, for example, uh, I, I make the same point that you do that that it didn't it, that, that this painting really wasn't uh, you know a, a completely accurate thing. It certainly doesn't doesn't point out that he fell onto the river and that the 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 actual victory of the French came a couple of days later. You know, clearly it was it was an effort to symbolize the, the victory more than to represent the complete accuracy thereof. All right, guys, let's let's move on past Arcola because we'll, we can talk about this for hours. Let's get on to some of the other meaty stuff. I want to get into the meaty discussions more. Um, Philip, uh, you know, what if you had to pick a, Napoleon's biggest, your biggest criticism of Napoleon, what would it, what would it be? Where would you start? He, my biggest criticism of him? Yeah. I think um, that the more he... Uh, stayed in power, the less open to criticism and the less open he was to alternative suggestions and the more he believed his own hype um, to the point where um, in the last stages of the empire from 18, well, 1812 really, 1813 and 14 in particular, he, was in, he became incapable of actually um, adopting rational decisions um, because they they would have meant that he would have had to have questioned his own he, you know, his own being essentially. Well, give me so, give us an example of that in eighteen thirteen or fourteen. Well, eighteen eighteen thirteen, when he has the choice of. Um, making peace with the Allies, and in particular with Austria. When Austria, like uh, Metternich, I don't trust as far as I could throw, um, as mm -hmm. I can throw, but... Um, we're finding the argument here. Well, we're, 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 all, we're all on that one together anyway. But, but there is, a, there is a, a possibility here for Napoleon to... Well, I think, well, I think his biggest mistake, first of all, if, especially if you read... Um, I, I'll just point out Dominic Levin has come out with a new book called Napoleon Against uh, Russia, um, which I, th I think is incredibly well researched. And he too also points out that Napoleon's biggest mistake is actually allowing for a truce in uh, 1813. He should have pushed the Allies uh, through Saxony into Poland. But uh, that aside, the fact that he now has the possibility to negotiate uh, a peace settlement with Austria, and Austria has a number of... Uh, 
points that it would it like uh, it would like met before peace is concluded. Uh, Napoleon's incapable of doing that for whatever reason. Um, even if we take a cynical view of Napoleon and say, well, he could have made peace with Austria, it would have divided, uh, pitted Austria against Russia and Prussia, it would have allowed him a better chance to defeat Russia and uh, Prussia in Saxony in the coming uh, campaign, but that he's incapable of actually compromising, that he's incapable of actually negotiating even a, a moderate peace settlement, it, I find, uh, you know, I, I find remarkable. Well, but but let me just just for the sake of argument uh, suggest a couple of things. First of all, the three of us quickly agreed that we don't trust Metternich. So why shouldn't it be the fourth of us? Uh, why why shouldn't Napoleon be saying, "Wait a minute, you know, uh, these proposals for peace are being made, but I have to consider who is making them, and I'm not sure that I can trust." Uh, Metternich. I'm not sure that, you know, if I give this much, they won't expect even more. The other, the other problem, and I think a lot of people, uh, don't really deal with this problem as much as they should. Napoleon was a, 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 a masterful politician, uh, uh, domestically. He understood what the French people would or would not put up with. And some of the demands that were made uh, by the Allies uh, that Napoleon, you know, could could expect to have peace if he did this, this, and this, uh, would not have gone over well at all with the French people. For example, you know, giving up the the the, the boundaries, you know, going 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 back to the 1792 or whatever. Uh, boundaries. You know, the, um, the, 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 the people of France, having fought these wars and supported Napoleon all these years, to find out that it was all for nothing would probably have never allowed Napoleon to continue in power. So Napoleon really has to say, well, I can, I can cast my lot politically with, with the people of France and hope I can somehow survive the backlash from that. Or I can cast my lot with a continued military operation and maybe coming up with a better peace settlement if I can win one more victory against the, the, the Allies. I mean, it's a tough position to be in. There's no question Napoleon was being pressured from both sides on this. And I think it's a little disingenuous for us to, to, to act like he was not willing to to make a peace settlement. He was not willing to make a peace settlement that was going to destroy him uh, domestically. Uh, well, I think that's I, the key issue. I, I have to disagree with David on, on that point. I, th- I think Napoleon, by this stage, is out of touch with what the French people want. As far as I can tell, if you look at the police, uh, the secret police reports, that have, most of which have been published in a sure. series of volumes, um, the one thing the French people want, especially after 1806-1807, is peace on the international scene. And the one thing that Napoleon is not giving them is peace. I don't. Uh, there's nothing to indicate that if Napoleon had, and, and in, in 1813, the Allies are not yet asking for a return to the 1792-93 boundaries, 
But in 1813, if Napoleon had concluded peace and given way to the Allies on some issues, it still would have enabled him the possibility of regrouping and, and gathering a new army if he had wanted to in 1814 and come back to attack them the next year. The fact that he's not even thinking in these terms, I find quite surprising and he's, he's not thinking in these terms I think because he is incapable of giving ground one inch and he's always going on about and he says this to Metternich and a number of other people uh, in his entourage that you know he cannot um, you know he, he cannot give way he cannot make peace uh, he cannot return home defeated because he is afraid the French people won't accept it but the only as far as I can tell the only a person who's incapable of accepting that is Napoleon himself. The other thing that um, I, th I think we perhaps don't take into account uh, in enough is just how utterly unrealistic Napoleon's um, proposals, well, not so much his proposals, but his intentions are at this stage. He still thinks that he's, capable, he's going to be capable of fighting a war or a campaign in 1813, as he had done uh, prior to 1812, and in in, in 1813, um, I don't think he no longer he no longer has uh, the senior <coughs> excuse me senior military staff, nor does he nor does he have the depth of recruiting power that uh, the Allies have, and the fact that he can't see this, I find also surprising. Napoleon, I think, is. Uh, a supreme politician on the domestic front, but when it comes to foreign policy, I think he's he, time and again he proves himself to be uh, quite um, incompetent. Is 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 perhaps not too strong a word. I'd like to. Well, I, I, I'm 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 not I'm not so sure that I agree with with the the incompetence uh, aspect. I think I think you're right that he may very well understand that he doesn't have the ability. This is where I kind of disagree with you, actually. I, I said I think you're right. I think he understands that he doesn't have the abilities that he used to have, that he he has to to use, you know, you know politics in, in some way to to overcome his, his uh, military uh, – weaknesses that clearly he, he doesn't have the ability that militarily that he used to but whether he was correct or not i think what drives him is his concern that if he is seen as too weak he will be overthrown look at his entire history look at from the very beginning look at the history of france leaders who are considered weak do not last and he most of all did not want to appear to be weak to the French people. Now, whether he should have, in fact, you know, taken a different tack, you and I, with the benefit of hindsight, might actually agree. Uh, I've more than once uh, suggested that I, I wish he had settled, at least for a temporary kind of thing, as, as you suggest, where he could have come back and, 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 and lived to fight another day. But I'm not sure that he really saw that as a possibility. I'd like to throw in a couple of things if I can, guys. Um, first of all, Philip, I will say in our defense that I think uh, as we've discussed in the show, the last, well, even the last sort of 10, 11 years of Napoleon's active career, 
he um, increasingly found it difficult to uh, listen to the advice of others, and uh, we've discussed the merits or the, the problems with that in the past. I That's mean, true. To, uh, you know, I think on one hand, we, we uh, like to think that he was probably right in a lot of cases of doing that because he was a lot uh, smarter. <laughs> his, his intellectual arrogance probably came with, uh, you know, a little bit to back it up. He had been proven right over and over again. But let me ask you about the, this idea of, of the peace treaty. I mean, it, it's our perspective that with the exception of perhaps the invasion of Portugal, uh, Napoleon's not guilty of breaking peace treaties throughout his career. It's the uh, other monarchs of Europe that constantly signed peace treaties with Napoleon and France and then a year or two years later would turn around and break the terms of those treaties and wage war again. Uh, do you have the same perspective? No, I don't. <laughs> I've had many arguments with this over the years with people. Uh, for, I, think it, I think personally it's a little disingenuous to say, oh, the other powers declared war on France, therefore it must be their fault. I mean, time and again, Napoleon is putting those other powers, Prussia and Austria in particular, come, come to mind, in positions where they have little or no choice for, for reasons of prestige on the international scene, but to declare war against uh, France. Uh, Prussia in 1806 is a classic example. But for them to turn around and say the monarchies are picking on, on poor little old Napoleon, I, you know, it doesn't cut it. If you, I mean, I, I think Paul Schroeder's uh, work, The Transformation of Europe, uh, points all of this out uh, uh, very eloquently. I know some of you might no doubt think that uh, Schroeder's view of Napoleon is a little harsh and that he calls him uh, you know, pretty much a Corsican bandit and a condottieri uh, on the international scene. <laughs> yes, with no. slightly harsh. Yes, a little. But with... But, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Philip. But in terms of, of foreign policy, something is... I haven't quite figured it out yet, but something is driving Napoleon to go beyond the normal bounds of uh, French foreign policy. He's gone where no other... French monarch have gone before, including Louis XIV, who may have wanted to go where Napoleon went, but was incapable of, of doing so. So he has now control of all of Central Europe. He has control of, of much of Southern Europe and Northern Europe as well, and yet still is, is not quite content with what he has. And keeps, he keeps on pushing the boundaries further and further and further. So we, well, come on. I mean, I'm, I'm not so sure I agree. Think about 1808. He's down in, in, in Spain or Portugal. And, and, and I have written, and, and, and Cameron and I both agree, that if there is one area where we, we think Napoleon maybe really should have rethought things, it's the Spain and Portugal, the Iberian campaign. But – but you know, while he's down there, all of a sudden here come you know uh, here comes Austria and so forth, which leads to the eighteen o nine campaign. I mean, they saw yeah. a man who they thought was down, and they moved against him, and then he had to go back and fight them. The same thing in eighteen twelve. Everybody talks about oh Napoleon's you know aggression in eighteen twelve. Well, you and I both know, uh, Philip, that that there were both armies were mobilizing. It was only a question. Of would it be fought in Poland or would it be fought in Russia? Napoleon chose to take the 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 the, the initiative to to make sure that it was fought on Russian territory rather than in Poland. We can argue all day whether that was the right thing to do or not. But the point is that it wasn't his aggression that caused that war. Well, it was what was going on. 
Well, there are two things uh, I'd say to that. First of all, as I'm sure you'd agree, policy, politics, and especially foreign policy, is often more about uh, perceptions than it is about the actual reality of the, of the politics or the policy itself. And sure. there's no doubt that uh, many European leaders, whether they were right or wrong, is, is almost a moot point, but there's no doubt that they saw uh, France and Napoleon as a threat to the international system. And in fact, most of the political leaders of the day uh, believed that Napoleon was out for a universal domination, and that's the expression that comes up time and again in the uh, letters and correspondence of the day. So there is a fear that somehow Napoleon wants to conquer all. And the other, the other thing is, um, I think that ambition uh, existed in reality. What, what is he doing invading Russia in 1812 if not trying to force Alexander I to comply with his blockade? Uh, you know. Well, hold on. I mean, <laughs> okay, all right. Let's, 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 let's get you in the ring, Philip. I mean, in the case of Russia, actually, I'm going to go back a step to a conversation we're having five or ten minutes ago. To me, what happened post the first abdication and, and the second abdication as well, but what happened at the Congress of Vienna and what, what happened with the first abdication is a good example of really how much the United Monarchs gave a damn about the people of France uh, and their wishes. Uh, you know, they had very forcefully thrown out the Bourbon monarchy. And uh, the, the first... So I said, yeah, the French... Yep. And and the and the first thing that the United Monarchs did after they shipped Napoleon off to Elba was reinstate the very monarchy that the French had gone to great lengths and bloodshed to get rid of 20, 25 years previously. Yeah, so, so what what choice did they have? I mean, it's not as if they set out to overthrow Napoleon in 1812 or 1813. In fact, even in 1814, apart possibly from... Alexander I, most of the European monarchs, including the British, I think would have been more or less happy to keep Napoleon on the throne. I think it's Napoleon's unreasonable behaviour that left them with no choice other than to kick him off been, and to been, put someone... They'd been calling well, him man, a man, maybe stop, but, 20, but, but let, me, let, me, let me point out, and, and, I, and I discussed this in my most recent book, okay, fine, let's assume, Philip, that you're, that you're correct, that they're so afraid that Napoleon wants to conquer everything that they can no longer accept Napoleon on the throne. Now, never mind the fact that that, of course, is the classic British line that was the, 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 the British point of view from the very beginning of Napoleon's ascension to power, and it may very well be that, that, that they have simply bought into this British propaganda, which is, by the way, no more accurate than some of the, the images that we've talked about of Napoleon's uh, greatness. If, if sure. the Grove painting is, is, is a – an overrepresentation of Napoleon's importance at, at Arcola, uh, British propaganda certainly is 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 at least as as inaccurate in its representation of reality. But let's let's assume for a minute that that uh, that they cannot accept Napoleon. They still had the, the option of uh, Napoleon's uh, son. Uh, after all, in in in. Very rarely do you do you see uh, foreign countries coming in and demanding, you know, that an entire dynasty been be overthrown. So you could have had Napoleon's son with Marie Louise, 
under the influence of her father, the Emperor of Austria, uh, as as regent, or you could have had the the uh, reestablishment of a French Republic. Uh, but instead, uh, thanks to uh, uh, Fouché and Talleyrand and and, and others, uh, you you have the last thing that most French people wanted, and that is a reestablishment of the Bourbon monarchy. Now, how is the reestablishment of the Bourbons somehow better than keeping Napoleon on the throne? Well, it's, it's a question of uh, the devil you know, I guess. I, 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 yeah, I mean, realistically, if, you, if they had reinstated, if they had um, gone with the provisional uh, uh, heir to the throne, that is, uh, the King of Rome, Napoleon II, um, mm-hmm. Everybody f- would have feared that Napoleon would be there behind the scenes, even if from afar, uh, manipulating things. So I, I don't think that that was uh, an option for the Allies because it, w- it would have meant, in effect, that Napoleon would have still been in control of of things. And th- the Bourbons are a better option than the Republic. The Republic is feared. The Republic is still associated with the worst aspects of the French Revolution and Jacobinism, and it's the Republic. After all, it started all of this way back in 1793 when they they first uh, went to war. So there's no question of either Bernadotte or the Orleans uh, branch of the House uh, coming to the throne at this stage. So in realistic terms, I think the only option open to the Allies in 1814 are the Bourbons. I know well, the only... Go ahead, go ahead. The, no, even among the Allies itself, I mean, especially Alexander I, there's no love lost between him and uh, Louis XVIII. Um, but it's, it's a question of um, the devil you know, I guess. Well, the devil you know, or at least the devil you think you know, but the, the problem is that you are supporting a movement that, that eliminates 20 years of French history. The French people had made it clear, number one, they didn't want the Bourbons. There was no reason to believe that the French people, other than in, in isolated areas, for example, the Vendée, perhaps, a very religious, very conservative area. But for the, for, in general, there was no reason, there was no great clamor to bring back, you know, Louis the, the, the 18th. Uh, maybe. So you're right there. Maybe there was no great clamor to keep Napoleon, and maybe there was no great clamor to bring in Napoleon's son. But the idea that we're going to eliminate the possibility of, of a republic of France, never mind a, 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 a continuation of the monarchy with the king of Rome, uh, because that would somehow not fit well with the Allies' perception of what they wanted France to be uh, – tells me that you know the the allies desire for a what france should have is more important than the french ideas of what france should have uh and and i find i find that you know fairly reprehensible and i again Maybe it wouldn't be the King of Rome. Maybe it would be a return to the Republic. Maybe, maybe a, a Lafayette or someone, you know, would be brought back in, or the provisional government. Although God help us, not with Fouché as as the head of it. Uh, but there, there were other options than the 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 return of the Bourbons. But the reality is between between the pressure from the Allies and the 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 actions of 
one of the 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 the, the worst traitors that French ever the French ever had, in my opinion. Uh, you know, uh, Fouché. Uh, we end up returning to the Bourbons, and we all know how well that worked out. Well, I guess this comes back to the, the nature of the Napoleonic Empire and just how much depth it had within the French people itself. And, and, and I'm not sure that it did have uh, much. And one of the telling signs, I think, is the extent to which the notables had begun to desert the regime towards the end of the empire and the extent to which they didn't really rally to Napoleon during the Hundred Days. If the political elite is not willing to throw its lot in with Napoleon, certainly not to the extent that they did in 1804, for example, when the sure. the empire was first proclaimed. But in ten, ten years later, they're, they're quite disaffected with the regime, and they're disaffected with the regime because it appears to be a never-ending series of campaigns. When When is peace going to happen? When, that's when a, would that's Napoleon a fair have, question. Uh, well, and it's it's one that uh, has leaves me scratching my head, but, and I'm wondering whether peace would have ever occurred on the continent. It, it, the struggle between England and France is a slightly different uh, thing altogether, I think. But peace on the continent, I'm wondering whether it would ever have happened well, if. Napoleon did not succeed in completely dominating the continent. Well, you and I actually agree on this. There is real question as to whether or not peace would have occurred, but I think where we disagree is the cause for that question. You would suggest that the reason for a lack of peace on the continent was Napoleon's insatiable desire to to rule the world, as it were. I would suggest, and, and obviously... I think I've got the better argument uh, that the, the question why uh, there may or may not be peace in the continent is because of the Allies' refusal to acknowledge the French Revolution and subsequently Napoleon's legitimacy on the throne. As far as the Allies were concerned, Napoleon was nothing uh, but a threat to the established order. Uh, they would not be happy until they put uh, one of their own on the throne. Since Louis the Sixteenth was dead, the uh, putative Louis the Seventeenth was dead. Now they were going to be determined to put Louis the Eighteenth on the throne. Until they had a Bourbon on the throne, the Allies simply would not be happy and would not tolerate Napoleon no matter what he did, no matter what overtures of peace he made, no matter how generous he was when he defeated his enemies and didn't, you know, necessarily take, you know, the pound of flesh he he, he might have been able to. It didn't matter. Every possible opportunity that they had to go after Napoleon, they took. And 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 I'm you know, I, I would ask you to, to ask yourself, you know, what could Napoleon have done throughout his time in power to overcome that? Well, that's a, that's, I think there's a very simple answer to that question. That is simply stop waging war and simply stop annexing territories into the empire. Every time he annexed a country, he poses a threat to the international 
order of things as they existed in Europe at the time. But that, well, what, but that annexation usually always happened as a result of a defeat of a country that had waged war against France. Isn't, isn't well, that standard international you know, politics for the 19th century? Well, not, not always, Cameron. If, if you look at the annexation of Holland, which I, from memory took place in 1810, it was simply because um, uh, Napoleon is, is very unhappy with the way things are being run by his brother Louis, and in part because Louis is more sympathetic to the people of Holland than he is towards uh, Napoleon's desire to close the boundaries uh, to the blockade. Um, the, but the other, the other thing is, um, I've, well, I'm sorry, I've lost track of what I wanted to say. Um, you, Louis XVIII. Yes. The other thing is that Louis XVIII. I don't think anybody, including the British, really cared about Louis XVIII. Um, a monarch is legitimate as long as that uh, person is accepted both by the people over whom he rules and by the other. A political elite outside of, so the European political elite outside of France, and as you know, we know that Napoleon was more or less accepted as the the legitimate monarch of France. What became unacceptable for them was this constant waging of war and these constant annexations. But, the but, fact but, that but, northern but, Italy Philip... becomes part of the French Empire, the fact that part of Spain becomes part of the French Empire, if, however briefly, the fact that uh, northern Germany along the, the coast is annexed into the French Empire, all of these things are very worrying signs for the other great powers. Well, they, they, they may well be, and I, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm sure that if, 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 if I'm a Prussian or an Austrian or a Russian or, or a Spaniard, you know, and I see Napoleon's success and I see, you know, that, that some of these things have happened, I might be nervous. But I would again echo what, what my, my friend Cameron has said, and that is how is it Napoleon came to annex these, these, these territories? It's because they declared war on him. You look at the, 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 the history of this thing. It is a series of coalitions, first through seventh, of coalitions against Napoleon. Napoleon does not take the initiative. You can make a, a slight argument for 1812, but that was a matter of who, who moved first. But it's the other forces of Europe that are attacking him. And so, of course, he he takes uh, you know some retribution when when he is successful at winning. Now, you're you're right, by the way, uh, about uh, him and his brother. That was an internal matter, and and one one can argue uh, about whether he should or should not have handled that the way he did. But that's fairly minor in in the in the context of of seven. Coalition, coalition wars against Napoleon, uh, and and I just I just don't see that you can blame him for all of the things that 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 happened during this period of time. Well, um, there 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 we will have to agree to disagree. <laughs> well, well, of course, of I course, this will be this will be a never-ending uh, debate. Um, but, 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 but a good debate. I, the, the, there is the one constant uh, within all of those seven coalitions, and that is uh, Great Britain. And Great yes. Britain, I, I think, uh, has 
gotten off a little lightly over the years uh, in terms of its responsibility for these wars. I agree with you there. Um, Not in my book, they haven't. <laughs> um, <laughs> with the one exception. Um, they are going off conquering uh, vast tracts of uh, territory and colonies in the rest of the world while the great powers are slogging it out on the continent. But if Napoleon had adopted a somewhat different strategy and focused on trying to defeat Great Britain as naval power without involving the other land powers and without launching upon a fairly aggressive policy of expansion and annexation, then Great Britain would have found it incredibly difficult to find allies on the continent. And as it, you know, as it turned out, it had to pay millions of pounds in subsidies in order to galvanise some of these countries into the coalitions in any event. But you know, well, I agree with you on that. Next. I agree. I agree with you on this. In fact, I, I'm, I write notes as we talk, and you had commented that, that there was a great fear that Napoleon wants to conquer all of all of Europe and so on. And 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 my written comment was that this this is to some extent at least British propaganda. That is clearly what the British wanted the continent to believe. You must fight Napoleon because he wants to conquer you. And by the way, we will finance any war you wish to make against him because the Brits were absolutely determined to destroy Napoleon. And you see this all the way to the very end when instead of letting him retire in the in in in, in Great Britain or letting him go to the United States, they insist on, on sending him to St. Helena. The British were single mindedly determined to destroy Napoleon because he threatened the balance of power that they felt they had to have. If if somehow Europe continental Europe became unified under any anyone, whether it was Austria or Russia or, or France, if continental Europe had somehow become a unified power, then Great Britain, in, in, you know, in, in their opinion, would be threatened by that. They needed a balance of power on the continent in order to secure, in their mind at least, their own security. Now, I don't know if that's an accurate belief on their part or not. I'm not so sure that, that a unified Europe under, under Napoleon would necessarily uh, want to, to fight against England. I think, frankly, Napoleon would have been delighted had the Peace of Amiens lasted for many, many years, and they established good trading relationships and so on. Uh, but the reality is that, that uh, during the Peace of Amiens, uh, England was not willing to, to uh, accede to uh, French dominance of the continent, and through the entire Napoleonic period, they were not willing to accede to French dominance. And that is probably the, 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 the underlying reason for all of these coalitional wars against Napoleon and against France. Well, I, I, I won't um, enter into the debate about the war of 1803 and the Treaty of Amiens and who was to blame. I, I think that one side is as bad as the other. Really, They're both culpable in some respects. But I, I don't think that uh, this fear that Napoleon is, is out to conquer 
Europe is British propaganda. If, if you look at uh, the letters of the leading statesmen of the day, whether they're in Prussia, Austria or Russia, they all express the same concern, and that is Napoleon is somehow uh, setting out to reconstruct either the Roman Empire or Charlemagne's Empire in the West. And this, this doesn't have anything to do with British propaganda. It's got to do with Napoleon's actions on the international scene. And it, it raises questions about... Did Napoleon, or in my mind at least, did he have any limits? Would he have been content with Europe? Would he have gone on to defeat Britain if he had managed to unite Europe and then possibly other parts of the world? We know that he at least thought about, planned um, expeditions to the rest of the world, as far afield as uh, Java and uh, the Philippines and uh, South America. And the only thing preventing him from doing so was the British Navy. But Napoleon, it's, it tells us who Napoleon is. Napoleon is about possibilities. And it's about the potential of those possibilities. And, that's, and the fact that he is capable of even imagining what he might do after Europe, I think, tells us a great deal about who the man is. Well, and, and, and that's fair enough. All, on the other hand, he was realistic enough to understand that he simply was incapable or that France was incapable of maintaining a, a, a major uh, colonial system on the other side of the Atlantic. So he sold for a relatively small sum of money uh, the entire Louisiana Territory to 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 Thomas Jefferson in the United States, which of course was was good from his point of view, in that it, it, it he hoped would would create a counterweight to to Great Britain in in, in doubling the size of of my country, the the United States. Uh, but he also, <clears throat> I think it's important to understand that he he did this not just because he wanted to help the United States become a counterbalance to the UK. Uh, to Great Britain, but but also because he understood that that there were limits to what he could do, and yes, I know there are there are many theories, including people who wrote at the time that Napoleon wanted to be the the new Alexander the Great, that if he had, had been more successful in in Egypt in the Holy Land, for example, he might have marched into Persia, and there was there was some writing at the time when he was in Russia that had he been successful in Russia he might have kept going you know in 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 into to the ancient Persia and so on and maybe he did have some dreams about doing this it's it's very very difficult to say but even if he did uh, that wouldn't make him into some kind of ogre maybe he simply wanted to carry western civilization uh, in into non-Western areas. That's that's hardly a new concept. It's hardly a concept that that wasn't tried or at least promoted before by any number of of of, of, of Europeans going back at, at the very least as far as the Crusades. So, you know, the idea that that Napoleon said, you know, listen, I would like to carry my civilization forward, is 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 not a condemnation of him as a leader, uh, and of course it it, it it never happened in any event. 
No, but I, I guess, um, well, once again, there are a couple, a, a couple of things uh, I could respond to that. First is that um, if Napoleon is, is toying with these ideas of becoming, you know, master of the universe or master of the world, and these are expressions that uh, he actually uttered uh, himself to various people, um, around uh, anywhere between 1806 and 18, Because we have done this show for two hours straight in the past. That's true. My suggestion is, though, we might want to wrap it up. And, Philip, as our guest, I'm going to give you the right of the, the final comment. Well, but before he gets the final comment... <laughs> no, 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 seriously, no, no. Then, and Philip will like this. Let me, let me point out, if we, if we, we probably mentioned it an hour or so ago... Philip Dwyer's book, Napoleon, The Path to Power, came out a couple of years ago. And while anyone can clearly 
uh, understand that, that that Philip and I don't agree on everything. I I want to to you know and give uh, we we plug my books uh, on this show, Napoleon for Dummies, and so on. But I want to give Napoleon uh, Philip's uh, book a, a a an an honest plug. It's it's a good book. I've read a fair amount of it, not all of it by any means yet, but I've looked at it carefully. And and it's well worth the read. And 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 Philip, you you did a nice job, and 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 uh, you 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 deserve the the awards that you've gotten. And and I wish you all the very best on this. That's very kind of you, David. Thank you. Um, and and uh, let me say then, if if I'm if I've got the final words, um, that um, well, I'm not quite sure how to how to wrap uh, how to wrap this up, but. Um, I I guess my final position is that I I don't see Napoleon as a victim as someone who was um, picked on by the other European powers because he was uh, considered to be a revolutionary or an illegitimate monarch and if we look at Napoleon's behavior in those countries that he did conquer and annex he doesn't behave like a revolutionary. He works uh, closely with the established elites that are in place. It's true that he often imposes the Code Napoleon on these countries, but the, the Code Napoleon is incredibly flexible and he will ignore some passages and articles within the Code if they upset the peoples uh, over whom they are meant to to regulate and uh, so he doesn't I, you know the bottom line is Napoleon's no revolutionary he's someone who's capable of working within the system it's just that in terms of foreign policy for whatever reason there's something pushing him and driving him on to um, you know to never ending uh, conquests and I, I can imagine Napoleon that would, ne- would not have been content with uh, recreating a Roman or a Western style empire and someone that might have might have gone on to do even even greater things uh, if he'd managed to conquer Europe that's my final say <laughs> and with that a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for uh, it's coming. It's been great on fun. Show, thank you for thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, thank you very much, Philip, for uh, for joining us. We really appreciate thank you it. Okay.